That just seems extra bright today. It is? Oh. <laughs> Good morning. I might not be able to see you, but I guess you can see me, so that's a win. Um, this morning, we're going to be continuing our sermon series on DNA. Um, speaking of DNA, saying that DNA is the genetic um, carrier of information for us. So DNA speaks of your essence, what makes you who you are, and DNA also replicates or reproduces. So in this series, we're saying these are the basic distinctives that make us Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, but these are also the distinctives that we want to walk in as we're called to be disciples who make disciples. So it's not just this is who we are or this is who we dream to be, but this is who we want to be actively reproducing. Um, this morning, it was funny, earlier in this week, I was talking to Pastor Esty. I was like, God has a sense of humor. This morning, I'm going to preach on healing, and I'm sick, you know? Um, the good news is I don't think I'm contagious, and mostly I know that because my family has been healthy the whole week and has been kind of bitter. Um, but the other one is um, I, I was talking to a really good friend of mine who knows me really well, and, and he was, you know, he's also kind of brilliant, but he was like, so how you been sleeping? I was like, eh, not really good, you know? You know, and he's like, but when's the last time you, you like unwind? And just like, you didn't think about all this stuff you just dumped on me. I was like, I don't know. And he was like, I, I think you're sickness. He's like, do you have a fever? I was like, no. You throwing up? No. Like listed a bunch of, no. He's like, I really think your body's trying to tell you something your mind won't accept. You're stressed out. You need to breathe, you know? Um, so the good news is I'm not contagious. The bad news is it's stress. So I'm putting that on y'all. Um, but um, as we're thinking about healing, though, one of the things I, I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse. Maybe I've been to Old Testament too much because they usually go together. Um, but one of the blessing and curses of, of going and, and being able to see all different denominations, you know, like I grew up in Liberian Baptist, which I learned is very different than black American Baptist, which when I came to America, I learned is very different than Southern Baptist, you know. Um, I grew up also Plymouth Brethren, which I learned is very different than Brethren in Christ and also a little different than Mennonite Brethren and, and Church of the Brethren, right. Um, so I've been able to be in a lot of different lines of thinking and theologies when it comes to healing. One of the things that excites me about being brethren in Christ and, and being HBIC is that when we speak about healing, we try to paint a holistic picture of healing. When we talk about healing, it's that God is a God who heals us relationally. That means that there's brokenness in the, the relationships that we have. Um, I think one of, again, the blessings and curses uh, of the human condition is that those who are closest to us, we can sometimes hurt the most. And, and it's the opposite too, right? Like those who are closest to us can, can hurt us the most. And there's a lot of us who go through this life who are committed and we love Jesus, but there's relational brokenness that we're walking in and we need God to heal that. You know, but then there's also emotional you know, there's a lot of us who've either been through stuff or are going through stuff or have stuff that's done to us or stuff we've done. And we just need a God who can give us mercy to heal us from that emotional anguish. And then there's also physical. You know, you don't need to watch Benny Hinn. You know, I said that and, I, and someone looked at me in the first time. I was like, oh, you're young, you know. I don't get those moments too often, but I felt it. I felt them. I'm like, oh, you're young, you know. 
Um, but for a lot of us, even those of us who grew up in the church, when we hear healing, we go automatically to the physical, you know, like God. And, and I love that God shows his power. I love that there's nothing too powerful for our God. I love that our God is a God of miracles, but God shows and heals the physical the same reason why he heals the emotional and the relational, and that's to reveal his mercy, his love, and his grace. But for all of us, the core of this life on this side of heaven is God desires spiritual healing, that there's a rupture in our relationship that sin brought in. That there's a brokenness that God wants to heal and transform and redeem. And I think for a lot of us, we think of that time a long time ago, you know, when we came and, and chose to follow Jesus. But I think one of the things I've been thinking through is that there's a lot of people who, because of really bad theology or thinking, get passed down a lot of negative things in the name of Jesus and they need healing from like this week, I was just thinking about, you know, women who grew up in churches where they could have to be silent. Women who grew up in churches where their voice, you know, didn't matter enough or their voice didn't matter at all or they weren't giving chances to be able to walk in the gifts that God's given them to help us all do this work. And I thought about that as the spiritual abuse that they had to go through and how God needs to heal that too. But when we think about the God who heals, whether it's physical, spiritual, emotional, relational, one of the things that we who grew up in church love to do is to kind of just push off the small stuff. You know, we just like to go to God with the really, really big stuff. And I was reminded from one of our, our global workers, one of our missionaries who was here a couple years ago, probably more than that now because everything blends in, you know. Um, and, and, and I remember she was doing work in the office or something, but I had a meeting and I remember coming out of the meeting and, and that, that day or two, you know, like I just felt like my left knee was just really stiff, you know, it was like really, really stiff and it was painful to bend it, which is kind of important when you like to do stuff like, I don't know, walk, you know, like that's kind of important. Right. Um, and I just remember like, I was just like, oh, it's fine. I'll just do with it. You know, it's like not a big deal because again, I go to God with the big stuff, you know? And I remember walking out of this meeting and, and she stopped me. She's like, you okay? And I was like, well, I'm, I'm okay. But like my knees kind of hurting. Well, okay. And she's like, can I pray for you? And I was just like, oh, the missionary wants to pray for me, you know? Like, I know they're in the mission field, so they got superpower prayers. So I got to tap into this, you know? So, like, to say I was skeptical would be an understatement. But I was like, you know, she's a missionary. We'll let the missionary pray for me. But I remember that as she prayed, I was reminded of this Keith Green story that I hold on to forever. And he talks about how for a lot of us who are Christians and love God, we're very good at going to God with the big stuff. But we forget at the end of the day, God is our father. And, and, and those of us who are blessed with children or people who are young, younger than us, he talked about his old two-year-old. And he said, you know, my two-year-old comes to me and she's lost her nickel. I don't go to her and be like, oh, well, get over it. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Um, I go, oh, baby lost a nickel. And he tells that story to remind us that every little thing matters to God. Like, you don't have to save up, you know? You don't have to be like, God, you know, next week I got a list for you, <laughs> you know? Like, I got 10 little ones, one medium one, and two really big ones. Now we're ready to pray, right? 
just like a father or a mother would care and, and stop their world, right? And all of us who are parents with toddlers, we've done this. You know, you stop everything to go find a nickel and a piece of toy, and, and then you find food in the couch. But hey, you call it win, a win's a win, right? A win's a win. Um, but God is our God who cares about it all. And I think when we think about healing, whether it's physical, emotional, relational, spiritual, we have to remember that God is a God who cares about it all. Amen? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Kings 5. I'll be reading the first 19 verses. 2 Kings 5, starting at verse 1, going to about halfway through 19. Starting verse 1. Now Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded. Because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a violent soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him and that what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard what the, that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him his message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on me on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servant said to him, went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you some, to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept the thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me. Your servant be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha says. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you this morning that you are indeed Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals. God, we thank you that you heal us spiritually, that those of us who don't know you, your Holy Spirit comes to us and points us to Jesus Christ and reveals to us the truth that we can be set free from sin. 
But God, we also thank you that you're the God of emotional and relational and physical healing. So God, we pray this morning that we can know the God who heals, that we can rejoice in serving the God who heals, and that we can take up his mantle to be instruments of his healing to our world. In your holy and precious name, amen. So one of the things that's interesting throughout the Old Testament is that God reveals himself as the God who heals, Yahweh Rapha. You know, after he takes the people out of Egypt, they're, they're traveling in the desert, and they come to this place called Mara. And I love this story because, you know, you don't need to study Hebrew to know it. It's like they come to a place called Mara, and the water was bitter, and that's what Mara means is bitter. So they get to this place. First of all, they're in the desert. They're they're away from anything they've known for home, and they're traveling and trying to feed children and livestock and everything, and they finally get the water, and it's bitter. And God has this great scene where he actually tells them to cut down a tree and, and throw it into the river, and that's what makes the river clean, right? And for those of us who grew up in churches where everything pointed to Jesus, we're like, ooh, that tree is the cross, and the cross is the living water, you know? And again, I'm not saying that's bad theology, but that's just what I was taught, you know? But when you look a little bit deeper in the story, you see that God not only heals that water, but he wants the people to know, I am Yahweh, I am Rapha, I am the God who heals. And he even tells them, you saw all the plagues in Egypt. I will not put any of those diseases on you. Trust me, I'm the God who heals. And throughout the Old Testament, God does healing after healing after healing. And one of the beautiful things about Jesus is he only does what his father has done. So when Jesus puts healing at the heart of his ministry, he's only following what his father has done. And, and, and when you have where we are in our story, a little bit of background and setting, the first thing is you learn that, you know, we're in Aram, right? And Aram is, you know, well, Aramaic, but, but the, the, the Greek word for Aram is probably a little bit more familiar to us because it's Syria, right? That's where we were. This Aramaic empire probably went up to the Lebanese mountains and stretched and touched Iraq, right? The people of Aram were known as bandits, right? Uh, in our story, we learned that the servant girl is taken from Israel by raiders. Uh, now, for some people, they read this, they're like, I just can't relate to this. I'm like, yes, you can. You're American. Our country was built in going to another country and stealing people and bringing them over a ship or bring them here and putting them in a different land. You can relate, right? We're American. Um, but so, so Aram is this empire, though, and another way we can relate is Aram and Israel have this interesting history, right? And there's two ways it's interesting. One is they're related, and it's not in the, oh, we're all created by God, we're all related, you know? As Philip instructed me last service, you know, um, everyone has to come from Noah because everything was wiped out. But where they come from Noah is simply this. Noah had a son named Shem. And Shem had a son named Aram. So Egypt or Israel and Aram were relatives. They were close. They were family. This wasn't just like, we're all related. It's like, no, 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 no. These are people who value genealogy and can trace histories. They can tell you where they connected. But the second way they were related was politically. And it's kind of like the U.S. and Russia. I don't know if you've heard anything about U.S. and Russia in the last couple of years, you know. But we're going to skip the last couple of years and just go back to the 20th century. You know, in one world war, you can be enemies. And in the next world war, you can be allies, right? Like, that's what Aram and Israel was like. And you can read it through 2 Kings. There's one chapter where you're like, I think they're on the same team. Then there's the next chapter you're like, they're fighting each other. What's happening? And again, we're like, we can't relate to that. U.S., Russia, 20th century, all the history teachers in the room say amen. There's like one of you maybe, you know? But that's what's happening in this scene, right? You have this culture of people who are related, 
They know they're distantly related, but they can trace their history. They've been growing and being groomed together alongside each other. But they also are very, very different in how they understand and see God. Now, we have three principal characters in the story. The first is Naaman. We're introduced to Naaman as a valiant commander. He's well regarded. In Syria and Aram, he has everything you could want. He not only has the king's ear, but he seems to be the most important person in the kingdom outside of the king. He's rich. He's wealthy. He has servants. Everything is great except for this little leprosy. And leprosy is a very tricky word because in the Greek, it, it basically just comes down to a bunch of different skin diseases. You know, and there's people who try to argue what kind of leprosy and what kind. And here's the I did spend a lot of my Thursday afternoon researching one little thing for this sermon. It took a little bit of a rabbit trail, right? So I'm not going to make fun of those people too much, right? But I'm going to tell you that it doesn't matter what kind of leprosy because you weren't there and you don't know, right? But all we do know for sure is it was a skin disease, that was probably some kind of decay, that was something you couldn't hide, that was very, very infectious, and that people would see or smell or encounter, and you were banished. So Naaman had everything his world could offer except his leprosy. And the second principal character I think is very, very interesting, and there's three times in this, this, this story that I love this, that you have the really rich or the really powerful are instructed by God through servants. And you have this servant girl. You know, and every, every now and then you'll hear her say, you know, like even last week when I preached on discipleship, I said, at any given point, we should have people we're pouring into and we should have people pouring into us. Here's my plug for children and youth ministry. Every single one of us should either be praying or volunteering in children and youth ministry. And there's a lot of reasons why, right? You come to me later, talk to Pastor Bree or Pastor Patty, they'll give you plenty more reasons, right? But here's one. Here's a little girl who's stolen, who's enslaved, who's without community, who's removed from her culture, who's by herself, but she remembers her God. And that's because somebody somewhere invested in her and told her who God was. This little girl, we don't know how old she is, but again, she's stolen from her land. She's without community. She's without anyone who's teaching now. You know, she's removed from everything that she knows, but she remembers her God because somebody taught her who God was. And she sees Naaman, her, her, her enslaver, you know, like we can try to pretty it up, you know, servant, you know. She's enslaved. She was stolen from her people and forced to work for him, right? And she sees him suffering. And she says, man, she says to her mistress, if only my master would go to Israel and know there's a prophet who could heal him. That little girl, because of people pouring into her and praying for her, can be removed from everything she knows and still know God. If that's not a plug for why you need to be involved in children and youth, you don't have a heart and I need to pray for you. It's true. I mean that with all my heart. <laughs> you know? Either volunteer or start praying. That's your two options. Do something. All right, off the soapbox. But the thing that's wild, though, is that the third person in this story is Elisha. And Elisha is one of those people who I have a warm, you know, like I just have a warm spot for. 
I, I can relate to Elisha, you know. Elisha to me reminds me a lot of, 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 of Joshua, you know, like the person who has to follow the person, you know. Like, like Moses is literally the one who pulled them out of Egypt, you know, and he can't get to the promised land. He's like, Elisha, I'm, uh, Joshua, I'm done. Good luck, buddy, <laughs> you know. Go on, right? And Elijah's the same thing. Elijah is this great prophet who stares down Baal and stares down Ahab and Jezebel. And, and, and Elijah's just like a little farmer, you know? And it's just like, you got next. It's like, all right, let's do this. God help me. But the thing about Elijah that I love, though, is that he is a faithful person. A lot of the prophets that you read about, their careers, if we want to call it that, are not very extended. A lot of them, it's like five years, ten years. You know, one of the famous ones is Amos. We think it might have just been like a fall, <laughs> like a season where he came in, preached his fire sermon. It's like, I'll see you guys later. Good luck, you know. But Elisha served his people for 60 years, 60 years of faithful service. And I, I have a warm spot because anybody who can serve anyone for a year gets a blessing, but 60 years of serving his people. Another thing about Elisha was he was very much a miracle worker. You know, he's, you know, I talk about the waters of Mara. Elisha cleansed the waters of Jericho. Why is that important? Again, we can argue or find our theological uh, articles on it, but the people back then believed that this water, like, was so infested that it caused miscarriages, you know? And we can argue scientifically, is that true or not? But Elisha healed it, and then no more miscarriages. That's a win. But he also multiplied oil for a widow, you know, a poor widow whose husband and her, they were committed to God. And, and, and this is something that a lot of people don't understand. But in this country, in 2020, there's some of us who, when our parents die, we inherit stuff. That's a privilege, right? There's also some of us who, when our parents die, we owe, you know? That's, I don't know what the opposite of privilege is, but that's, that's real, you know? Like, we owe. We don't get nothing, you know? Nothing passed down. We owe the debt. And that's where this lady was in. She was in a situation now where she was in poverty and her husband died. They had no way of taking care of themselves and the debtors come to call in their debt. And she goes to Elisha and she says, listen, we love God. We're committed to God, but we can't do anything. So Elisha says, it's fine. God's got you. Why don't you get some jars together? Get as many jars as you can find, you know? And she goes all around town. And they gather all the jars and he prays and, and God keeps providing oil and oil and oil. They pay off their debt and they get to a place where she's able to then provide for her kids. Elisha was a miracle worker. My favorite one is probably, though, the Shunammite woman. There was a lady who was a little bit well off. And, and I don't do this as much anymore, but in the last couple of years, you know, I used to preach a lot of different churches. And, and the church has shown me great hospitality. No one's done this for me, right? This lady was like, I don't know if she was fully following Yahweh yet, but she knew something was different about Elisha. So what she did is she basically built him that century's version of a penthouse condo on top of her house. Now like I said, people show me a lot of hospitality, but no one's building a separate wing just for me to come and speak once, right? But that's what she did. She put him on the roof so it could be a little bit cooler. She built him a little room, and she took care of him and his servants, you know? And in, in telling her thanks, they're having this conversation, and, and Elisha's like, hey, I want to tell you something. She's like, well, okay, yeah, what, what? She's like, you're going to have a son. And she's like, I, well, I mean, I know you're a prophet and all, that's what y'all do, but, you know, I already had a son. You know, my son actually just passed away. And he's like, no, 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 no. Next year, this time, you're going to have a son. And I don't know if she believed him, but she's like, okay, prophet guy, thanks. Enjoy your patio, you know. And the next year, she has a son. 
And this son of promise grows up. And, and, but that son of promise gets sick. And, and what I love about this woman's faith is that it grows to a point that when her son is sick, her situation doesn't take her mind off of her faith and believe in God. So she, while her son is sick and dying, she sends word to Elisha. And Elisha sends word through his servant. And that is one of the first stories and maybe the first story of resurrection in the Bible. So when I say Elisha is a miracle worker, you have to understand that the principal character in this story is not used or it's not like um, he's not immune to miracles. What he did was miracles for people time and time again to show God's power. So this is someone who's very trained in God's wonder-working power. So you have Naaman, the commander, everything the world could want, but has leprosy. You have the servant girl, nothing that anyone would wish upon anyone. She's got nothing, no family, no home, no culture, no surroundings to keep her thing. She's in this foreign, strange land, but she has her God. And then you have Elisha, the faithful prophet, who's a miracle worker. And then throughout the story, you have these other characters pop up. The king of Aram, who we don't know a lot about except through this text. We know that he must be powerful right? He must be powerful. We'll point out how powerful in a second. You have the king of Israel who, again, has this weird political relationship with Aram where he's just like, what are you asking me to do? Are you trying to pick a fight? And then you also have Naaman's wife, and again, you have servants. And when you read through this story, when you get home or later this week, I want you to pay special attention to how the powerful are literally moved by servants every time. And I think God does that intentionally, so when we get to our passage, one of the first things that the writer wants us to know is that God is the God of it all. So when we're introduced to Naaman, it's not just that he's a valiant soldier, but it's that he only knew victory because God gave it to him. And I love that because you have to understand these are very territorial people. They believe that, you know, there's a God of, you know, put it in our context, there's a God of Harrisburg, then there's a God of Camp Hill, then there's a God of Mechanicsburg. Now, some of us still might think that's true, right? But, but that's what they believe. So the fact that the author wants you to know that right away, Naaman might be in Syria, but Yahweh is still king. And every victory that Naaman has in Syria, God is only allowing him to have it. So Naaman receives victory through God. He's very well blessed. He has everything he could dream or imagine, but he has leprosy. And then you have this first movement of the servant, that the servant girl sees her master, her enslaver, with leprosy and says, you know what? If he only knew about Elisha and Israel and that God heals. Her mistress hears this, and she takes it to Naaman, who then takes it to the king. Remember I said that king is powerful? You know, it's hard for us to imagine how powerful these people are, right? And here's something. So the king sends a letter to Israel, Aram to Israel. Not a big deal, right? He just wrote a little letter and said, hey, here's my guy Naaman, you know, take care of him, right? But how important must Naaman be that the king is actually sending a letter to take care of him, right? That's the first one. But the second part is you read through some of this, and it doesn't hit you. How much money really is being sent along here? And it's something I missed in the story, and Sunday school didn't point this out. But that's 750 pounds of silver, that 150 pounds of gold that went along, somebody did the math, and they said, to this day, if you did it in this day's equivalent, that's three quarters of a billion dollars. That's what Naaman's coming with. 
So when you think about that for a second, like how important is Naaman or how powerful is this king? First of all, for you to be able to afford to write a check for three quarters of a billion and be like, take care of my guy. Like you have to be sitting kind of pretty, right? Like let's just be real. That's $750 million? Like that's a lot of money in silver and gold. And my favorite part about this is if that wasn't enough, he also got 10 outfits, you know? Like, here's 10 sets of clothes. Like, maybe they didn't like how the Israelites dressed, you know? They're like, now that you got real money, dress like you have it, you know? Stop looking like a peasant. Here's 10 outfits to teach you how to dress, right? Like, I'm just like, if you're going to write me a check for three quarters of a billion, I'll take your 10 outfits too. But that's how much money is coming along with Naaman. This king writes and sends not only servants, not only horses, not only chariots, but the equivalent in our day and age to three quarters of a billion dollars. That's what Naaman is coming with. Now, the king of Israel, he sees all this. He has this weird political relationship with Aram where it's like we're either friends or fighting. And he noticed and he's like aggrieved in his spirit because he's like, I'm not God. Like, I can't heal leprosy. You're literally just picking a fight because you want to go to war. Like, that's what you're doing. So he rips his robes, and he's screaming and crying, and he's in this deep mourning because he realizes, oh, my goodness, Aram's going to attack now, and they're going to use this as an excuse because I can't heal. And I love Elisha. He hears about it. He goes like, so, so why'd you rip your clothes, though? Like, what's going on? Like, like what's happening? Like, like, what are you talking about? And, and, and then the word comes out that Naaman is here to be healed of leprosy. And you have the second movement of a servant. So Naaman gets his three quarters of billion dollars worth of stuff. He gets his horses and his chariots, and they get on the road. And then and, 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 and there's most people who will tell you it took a little while to get from where they were in Jerusalem to get through to Jordan to get to the Samaria where Elisha was. But before they even enter in, the second movement of the servant, Elisha, and I love this about God because God removes the human element. I don't care how good Elisha's heart is. Three quarters of a billion dollars is three quarters of a billion dollars, right? Like, I think I have a pretty good heart. But if someone asked me to pray for them and offer three quarters of a billion dollars, I will have to think long and hard, you know? And God just removes all of that from there. He's like, I don't even want you to be tempted. Like, I don't want you to be tempted or to think this is about you. Send the servant with the instructions. So before Naaman ever reaches Elisha, he's at the doorway. The servant goes and says, hey, um, yeah, uh, the word from Elisha through the Lord says you got to go to Jordan and, and, and dunk yourself seven times. And you would think that this person who's traveling with three quarters of a billion dollars worth of stuff, you would think they would look at their stuff and be like, well, I get to take this home? Hi, I'll go dunk myself seven times. But Naaman is offended. Naaman is offended because he feels disrespected. He feels like I am the most second most powerful person in the world, or in that world, and I've come to this little old prophet in the middle of nowhere, and first of all, he sends a servant to me in the doorway. Like, he doesn't even come meet me. Like, I thought he was going to physically come and, and say his little magic formula and I would be healed, but first of all, he sends a servant to come to me, and second of all, why would I go to the Jordan? Like, we got better rivers. Like, why would I go to the Jordan? Like, I can go to the Habana. I can go to Farpaw. I can do whatever I want. Like, I can go to my own river. Give me your formula, and I'll be on my way. And it's this beautiful thing about healing that we must remember, that we got to not only take out the human element, that we got to know it's not about formulas, that we got to know it's God who heals. 
And there's a lot of people who do a lot of work on how the Jordan was dirtier and all that stuff. And I'm like, I don't know where you get that from in the passage. You know, like if you got that, that's good. God bless you. You know, but I think it's deeper than the Jordan was small or dirty. I think it was this simple idea that God wants to see, are you willing to be obedient? Do you trust me? And and, and what's funny about the story is the third movement of the servant, right? Like Naaman's done. He's just like, if this guy doesn't respect me enough to say his magic formula so I can be healed and on my way, I'm just going to go home. And God bless that brave servant who goes to the master and says, hey, man, we literally have traveled for weeks, you know? Like, it might even be months at this point. We have three quarters of a billion dollars that we were willing to give this person. And now, like, the Jordan is right there. It's right there, Naaman. Like, can you at least try it? Like, maybe try it before we go back? Like, can you try it? And, and, and Naaman is like, oh, okay, right? And he goes, and he dips seven times, and he's healed. And it's not just the instruction of God or the power of God, but it's Naaman's obedience to follow God that brings his healing. And then Naaman does something remarkable For a territorial people who believe God was only God in barriers, he professes there's no other God greater than the God of Israel. That's remarkable. This is someone who didn't grow up with a rabbi, didn't grow up under Jewish culture, didn't grow up with the proper teaching, but just through this healing, God revealed to Naaman that I am the Lord who's the God of it all, and Naaman professes it, and it's unbelievable. And his people are probably sitting there just like, I don't know what just happened, I'm glad he's healed, but like, does he realize what he's saying? And Naaman does. And the proof that he realizes what he's saying is he goes back to Elisha and he offers the money again, right? He's like, can I give you some of these gifts? And even though God had removed the human element, it doesn't mean temptation doesn't still come, right? Like Elisha could have been like, well, God, I mean, there's a lot of good I could do with, uh, you know, like three quarters of a billion dollars. There's a lot of good we could do with this, God. I mean, Samaria is kind of dry land. But Elisha refuses. And Naaman before he leaves, because that's where the, the Sunday school story usually ends, right? It's just like, he's healed, he goes back. But it's a very interesting interaction that I think teaches us something else about healing too. Before Naaman leaves, he says, hey, I know Yahweh is the God of it all, but can I take some earth with me? Because I want to worship him and him alone. And for us, that's like weird, because we're like, I don't know, like, we're just going to take some dirt with him. But you have to understand, for a territorial people who just had this miracle happen, he wants some of that dirt he's standing on, right? Like, it's just, if this is where I got healed, I'm going to take this dirt with me too, you know? Like, if this is where God is, this dirt's going to come with me, right? And, and so that's the first part of it. The second part about it is he wants to worship this God, but he only has that limited understanding. Like, just like, well, if God's here, I'm going to take him with me. But then you see God already working on his heart because he says, Can I be forgiven if I'm forced to enter into, you know, my master's temple and my master's going to bow to this other God? Can I be forgiven? And that's tough because everyone, and we're also thousands of years removed, but everyone who followed Yahweh would have known what's the very first commandment. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And I don't know if Elisha taught him all of that, but this guy already knew that the bow before Ramon is wrong, and can God forgive me? And there's a lot of people who are like, well, I don't really think, you know, Elisha is allowing him to worship other gods. You know, and there's some people be like, he says go in peace, so he must be okay with it. And I was reminded this week of a friend who lives in a primary Muslim country who loves Jesus, who has been running programs for Muslim kids and, and, and bringing them to Jesus. And he's faced persecution. They've burned down the school that he tried to build. He's been attacked. I thought about that friend because when those same kids who now have Jesus in their heart, when they go into the temple or they go into the mosque to pray, the prayers that they're calling on the name of Jesus, even though to everyone around them, they might be worshiping someone else. And I'm not saying that's okay. I'm just saying I'm not God. And you aren't either. And I am saying that what Elisha gives him is a piece of knowing that God sees your heart. That they might see you bowing to Remon, but God sees you taking the dirt into that temple. That they might see you bowing to Remon, but God sees you taking that dirt and you professing before him that you belong to him. And I'm not here to judge whether or not that's right or wrong. I just know that Elisha gives them peace. And if we're all honest... There's days and decisions that we all make that we're not sure about. And Elisha's prayer seems to be, if your heart is truly right with God, God will not only grant you peace, but you can worship God wherever you are. We think about DNA and healing. I think we have to remember just three or four things from this story. One is that God is the God of it all. It doesn't take something big for you to go to him and ask for healing for. We have to remember that God works in many different ways. You know, God works in the miraculous. God works through prayer. God works in therapy. There's some of us who've been through such muddy roads and such hard times that we need someone who's actually trained in what we struggled with to be able to unlock and, and be able to set us free through not only the prayers of the people praying for us, but through their training. I think every single adult, you cannot live in this world without having at least one person that you can talk to and be vulnerable with and that's going to build you up. God works in many different ways. And one of the ways he works through is through discipleship. We said you got to be pouring into people and being poured into. That's another way that God can heal you. Because when you can help prevent someone from going through the hurt you hurt, or you can help them because you've both gone through that together, healing can be possible. But the thing we have to remember is that there's no magic formula. We cannot dictate to God how he heals. We cannot tell God how to heal because healing is by revealing who God is. And there's some of us in this room this morning that we just need relational healing. The hard part about being a Christian is that you actually have to be like Jesus. And there's some of us who have people 
who have hurt us so deeply. We have people who have broken our trust and betrayed us so deeply. And I'm not saying you need to forgive them and be best friends forever. But I am saying that your healing comes with forgiveness. I'm saying that our job as Christians is to look like Jesus. And if Jesus won't count our sins against us, we got to be better at forgiving. And as we're reminded in that prayer, forgive as I have forgiven you. Because if you do not forgive, God may not forgive you. And so for those of us who need relational healing, the prayer this morning is for reconciliation. It's for vulnerability to say, this is where I messed up, or this is where you hurt me. But you know what? Here's the olive branch, and let's try to rebuild this thing. And there's some of us who need emotional healing, whether it's stress or life or whatever we're going through that's weighing us down. We need the peace of God that surpasses all understanding We need to be set free from the shackles of the world that we've put ourselves in. We need to be set free from sometimes the the locks we've put all around our heart that God can't get through. We need to be set free. And there's some of us in this room that need physical healing. There's something going on with your mind or your body that you can only go to God with. And yes, he's blessed you with doctors and God works through medicine. And yes, he's blessed you with a counselor and God can work through therapy. And yes, he's worth you with a community and friends and God can bless you through discipleship. But God is the God of all power and you can call out to him and he just might heal you to reveal his grace to you. But I think for all of us this morning, we all need spiritual healing. And what I mean by that is, you know, it might be for those of us maybe in this room who've never truly chosen to follow Jesus and says, you're the Lord of my life. I give my life. I give my all to you. Maybe that's the spiritual healing you need. But for those of us who've made that decision, there might be places as we look back on our life or on our spiritual journey where people we know and love have hurt us where people in our churches, in our families, in our communities have taught us something about God that is not true or that's something that makes us feel unloved by God, unaccepted by God, not good enough for God. We need healing too. But praise God, because our God is still Yahweh Rapha. Our God is still Jesus the Savior. Our God is still God the Holy Spirit. Our God is still the God who heals. Amen? We're going to close our, our service this morning by having communion. I'd like to have um, everyone, the deacons, get ready. Um, and, well, <laughs> and Linda's going to come up, and we're going to do it up front. But as we're going through communion this morning, I just want us to be focused on the work of Jesus that happened on Calvary is a work that's not just supposed to be a one-time thing. It's a lifetime of transformation, and it's a lifetime of healing that's afforded to us. So as we take the bread and as we take the cup, may we celebrate that we can come to the table because our God heals. Amen?